Let me pray for us. Father, we give you praise that you are a God of love. You extend amazing grace to us. You care for us deeply. You don't need us. You're self-sufficient. You don't need anything. And yet you give of yourself freely. And I pray that we would be people who follow you with our whole hearts, not, not out of duty or obligation, but because we're convinced that there's so much joy in pursuing you, in loving you, in seeking you, in following you. Lord, you're so glorious, and I pray that we would comprehend your glory to some degree and that it would inspire us to just chase you with all of our hearts. Lord, I ask too that as we look at your word this morning that you would convict us and encourage us and minister to us. We believe your word has power and we believe that your Holy Spirit moves in the hearts of those who are your children and so we pray that you would move and work this morning. And Lord, if there's any here that don't know you, God, we pray on their behalf that you would open their eyes and they would come to know you and love you, that they would share in this joy that we have. So Father, use this time for your glory and for our good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bible with me to 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. And I'm going to say, like I often say, I encourage you to have your Bible with you when you come to church. Uh, it's important that you understand, or, or when you're tuning in via live stream too, just because you're at home and maybe in your pajamas, doesn't mean that your Bible should be on the shelf. I want you to have it with you. And it's important that you understand that, that when I teach, I'm not the authority here. Uh, actually, it's the scriptures, it's the word of God that's the authority, which means that you should be looking here with me as I teach so we can discover together what it is that God has to say to us. But even more than that, think about this. We actually claim as Christians that this is the word of God. Consider how incredibly significant that statement is. Christians claim that God, the creator of everything, the creator of your soul, has spoken words of love and affection and wisdom to you in this book we call the Bible. And how could we not then see these words as being incredibly precious? Literally, this book contains the words of life. And so I encourage you when we gather together, have your Bible for church or um, you know, at least have an app open. And if you don't have a Bible, we always, every week, have a table in the back with Bibles there. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take one. If you think those ones are cheap, then buy one. You can get one for like 30 bucks, and it'll be the best $30 you ever spent, I promise you. So let's read 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. The Apostle John writes, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. John starts verse 13 with this phrase, by this. And if you've been paying attention as we've been slowly making our way through the, the book of 1 John, then maybe you've noticed this phrase before. In fact, John uses this phrase 11 times in this short letter. There's only 105 verses in 1 John. So mathematically, he uses this phrase on average about 10 times 
in this, uh, or I'm sorry, about once every 10 verses. So what I want to do real quick is I want to start with a flyby of these verses. I want you to see how John uses this. Flip back to chapter 2, verse 3. And we're going to, talk, we're going to just fly over all uh, 11 instances of this little phrase. Chapter 2, verse 3. It says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. In other words, we can be sure that we know God when we obey him. Slide down a little further, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we know that we are in Christ, in God, if we walk like he walked, if we live like he lived. Moving to chapter 3, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So evidence of being a child of God is that we practice righteousness and we love others. Go down to verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We know what love is by looking at the sacrifice of Christ. Then verses 18 and 19, just a little bit further, it says, Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. So we know that we are of the truth when we actually love people in practice, in deed and in truth, not just with boastful claims. Slide down to verse 24, chapter 3, 24. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. This is almost a verbatim quote of the verse we're going to look at in chapter 4. So this is an important concept in John's mind. We know that God abides in us because he's given us his Spirit. Then go to chapter 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And so we can discern the Spirit of God because God's Spirit makes much of Jesus and affirms Jesus actually came in the flesh. Now look at verse 6 of chapter 4. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We know the spirit of truth because the spirit exalts God and it's committed to what is right and good and lovely and excellent and true. Okay, verse 13. This is today's verse, chapter 4, 13. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So we know that we're intimately connected with God because God's actually given us a portion of himself, his spirit. Now, chapter 4, verse 16, the, the phrase is in 17, but you need 16 for the context. So it says, so we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God 
and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. When God abides in us, then his love is brought to full measure. It's, it's made real in our lives. Last one, chapter 5, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commands. So the proof of our love for one another is found in our obedience to God. Okay, that's a lot. Here's what I take away from this. My little summary. The by this statements. I think John's goal is that we as his readers or listeners would have confidence what a Christian is. That we would know that by this, through all these pieces of evidence, we would know. And we live in a world, honestly, where there are just a lot of Christian imposters. And John does not want us to be duped. He, do, he doesn't want us to be deceived. Now, I noticed this week that in order to be a barber in Arizona, you have to have a license. You have to, you have to go before a board to get certified to be a barter, a barber. But to call yourself a Christian, there's no certification process. Anybody can claim it. Anybody can say they are. There's no governing authority responsible for like signing off on that to make sure that it's accurate. Now, this would be a sermon for another time. I think actually the church is supposed to have that kind of responsibility, but we usually neglect it because we don't want, to, uh, we don't want people to think that we're mean when we actually do our job. But it's even worse than that, actually, because there's this strange social pressure in our culture to accept people and their claims, no matter how crazy or absurd or far-fetched they may be, or you're an unloving person. In other words, I can claim all kinds of things about myself and you're supposed to just smile and nod your head, even though there may be zero evidence in affirmation of that truth. And the fact is, there are so many un-Christ-like people who bear the name of Christian that the standard is very low these days. Maybe you've experienced that personally. You know, maybe you can think of that coworker who's really tough to be around but then calls themselves a Christian. And what's tragic is this, it happens all the time. But what's not surprising is that this is actually not a modern phenomenon, which is why John has said again and again and again, by this we know things like who is a child of God. Writing 2,000 years ago, John wants to give us lots of metrics, measurements, uh, indicators, proofs, all the ways that we can know that we are a Christian. And of course, his goal is not to make us little morality police where we can go around with like a clipboard and be like, yeah, I think you're out, and you're out, and you're out. That's not the goal. His goal is to help us evaluate ourselves. How do you have confidence that you are a child of God? By this, John says, we can look at our own lives and we can see in the way that we live the way of Jesus, and then we can have confidence that we are a child of God. Now that does not, however, exclude us from holding others accountable. If you're going to make the claim that you are a Christian, then we who are also Christians 
should evaluate that claim. We need to raise the standard of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus said that he came to bring grace, or I should say scripture says that Jesus came to bring grace and truth in John chapter 1. Grace and truth. And I think more Christians in our age need to be bold to say, particularly among the people of God, by this we know who is a child of God and who is not. Even, go, even being so bold as to go so far as to tell people, I hear the words that are coming out of your mouth that you claim that you are a Christian. But by the conduct of your life, I'm not sure that I can affirm that statement is true. Scripture sets the standard, not people. And the reason that we need to be bold to talk about this is not so that we can be proud or feel better than other people. That's unchristlike, right? That's not the goal. The goal is so that we can use the piercing power of truth to give people a real experience of grace. Do you see what I'm getting at? To invite people who actually, by their conduct, prove they are far from God into a new life where they are walking with God, a joyful life of actually following God's commands, the delight and the freedom of life that comes with being in Christ. And sadly, if someone claims they're a Christian, but they don't actually follow the way of Jesus, they're going to hell. That's what Matthew 7 just said to us. And we do them no favors by wanting them to like us and accepting their profession of faith, even while we see all the evidence is to the contrary. And we just don't want to be bold to say to them, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I care about you enough to tell you, I just don't see Jesus in you. So again, let's begin, let's evaluate our own life, right? This is an opportunity for you to consider is there enough by this evidence flowing from your life to show that you are a child of God? And then let's graciously evaluate the lives of others so that we can invite others into Christ-likeness, a spirit-filled life of righteousness. Now, I'm not done with this point because I think this is exactly what John is saying in verse 13 of chapter 4. So look. All through this letter, John has told us what a Christian looks like with all of these by this phrases. And he says it again right here. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So let's unpack this for a second. I think in this verse, John tells us a what we know. And then he tells us a how we know. How do we know it? The what we know is what we can see, what we can perceive, what we can affirm when a person is actually abiding in Christ and walking in Christ. This is a visibly obvious thing. It just pours forth from people. We can know that somebody is a child of God because their life exemplifies Christ-likeness. The same kinds of qualities that God himself has in his nature. They exemplify the same life as God. We talked about this in great detail last week, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it this morning. I encourage you to go back and watch the YouTube video or listen to the message, particularly if you're tempted to walk out of here and be like, that Grady dude is a jerk. Go back and listen to it. 
But the true Christian is going to have a life that looks like Christ. And that shouldn't be surprising. It shouldn't be abnormal. We shouldn't be like, there's an exceptional Christian. And then, I, you know, I'm over here and I'm just kind of a cruddy Christian. A Christian should be typified by a fierce commitment to truth. A relentless devotion to people. A relentless selflessness. A fervent humility that's consistently shown in their life. A daily drawing of grace. They would never boast in themselves. They would boast in the grace that comes from Christ. A Christian should be typified by a resolute love for others. Seeking always to flee from sin. And by observing these things in our own lives and in the lives of other people, we can be sure that somebody abides in Christ. And how? How can we know? And th this is the second part of verse 13. The reason is because this life proceeds from the Spirit of God. It's divine. It's supernatural. It is not human. It is not in your own strength that you would live a life like this. The reason we can be sure that somebody is a child of God is because we can look at their life and we can say, that is Christ and who could be like that apart from his grace and his spirit? We're going to see in them a bright and obvious Holy Spirit-filled life. And frankly, like, I'm, I'm, I'm just tired of wondering. Maybe you've had that experience. Let me say it another way. I'm so weary of how deluded our definition of Christian has become that it could actually be tough for us to decide whether somebody is a Christian or not when they make that claim. We've let the standard fall so low that it's like, yeah, maybe. But it shouldn't actually be difficult. Again, now here's why. Not because of us. We're not boasting in our own strength. It's because God has given us his spirit. This is what John is saying here. And his spirit guarantees that we will look like Christ. Slowly, gradually, progressively. Yes, we're patient. We bear with one another. We covered that last week in our sermon. But the spirit does ensure that we are going to be like Christ. That's what verse 13 says. We can know someone is in Christ and Christ is in them because they display the supernatural evidence of God's spirit. The wonderful, beautiful, winsome, attractive fruit of the Spirit of God. So I think we need to raise the bar. We need to elevate our standards. We need to expect that people who call themselves Christians will bear the fruit of Christ Jesus. And of course, beginning with raising the expectations for ourselves. I have a friend who says... It's true we cannot see the heart of other people. And that should cause us to have a lot of humility when we interact with others. But my friend also says that God has made us fruit inspectors. I cannot see your heart, but I can inspect the fruit. But it's almost as if we typically look at the fruit of a tree that is the, person, uh, the conduct of a person's life, the way that they live, their demeanor, 
And it's like we look at that tree and it's like we look really hard and if we can find just one piece of fruit on that tree that this person shows that they're a nice person, then we're willing to accept their claim that they're a Christian, a Jesus follower. But here's why that's so wrong. The reason it's wrong is because that is deeply insulting to the Holy Spirit. Think about what that says about the Spirit of God. That's like, that's like saying we as Christians should expect almost nothing from the Holy Spirit. We should have very low expectations for the way the Spirit of God is going to transform us. In fact, the Holy Spirit isn't really very good at transforming people at all. It's like the Holy Spirit is some kind of bull rider. You ever seen like a rodeo bull rider? And the Holy Spirit's like trying to get a hold of the raging human heart. But he's not very good at it. And so we should expect that most of the time he's just going to get bucked off and trampled by that bull. Mostly the bull's just going to rage. And the Holy Spirit, because it's weak, is going to get trampled. But every now and then, you know, the Holy Spirit will kind of get things under control. And we'll see like a brief moment of Christ-likeness. But that's not how it works. And again, I think that's insulting to the Spirit of God. The truth is, if we are fruit inspectors, like Jesus said in Matthew 7, then we should expect to see a tree that is mostly filled with good fruit. Because a good tree is a tree that's connected to the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God always bears good fruit. And that's why the Holy Spirit is in us. That's why God gives us the Spirit to transform us and to bear fruit in our lives, to make us like Christ. And we know someone abides in Christ because God has given them the Spirit. Let me say one other thing here before I move on. It is true that some Christians are immature. And we want to give them time. I mean, there's all kinds of stories, right? I mean, some people become a Christian and then like within a year, their life is totally different. And then there's others of us that like become a Christian and it takes a long time for that transformation to take place. And we want to give people extra grace while they're in the process of maturing. Maturity is one of the goals of the Christian life. That's what Ephesians 3 says. But we recognize that growth takes time. But you know what I found? Immature Christians who are really born again, who are filled with the Spirit of God, they don't want to stay immature. They are not content to just be forever babies in the faith. They hunger to grow. They look for opportunities to grow. They don't stay immature for long. They surround themselves with people who are going to challenge them and encourage them. They become hungry for God's word. They're eager for Christian fellowship. They long to walk the path of Jesus and learn what it means to be obedient to him. But imposter Christians, these people who claim that they belong to Jesus but don't actually walk in his way, I would call them imposters, who sometimes play themselves off as just kind of immature, still in process of growing. They're not born again. They're not filled with the Spirit. When you call them to greater obedience and to growth and maturity and more abundant, juicy, beautiful fruit, they tell you, stop being so self-righteous. Stop being so judgmental. They avoid their Christian responsibility. Usually what they do when you do that is they go find a different church where people don't care as much about them. 
And we as the body of Christ, we need to stand against that courageously and remind people, if the Holy Spirit is in you, then you are going to abide and you are going to bear much fruit. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. It's not you. It's not me. It's the Holy Spirit. And don't we believe that the Spirit of God has power? That's how we know that God is in us. Because God bears fruit. But if there's no fruit or there's little fruit, then we need to honestly just conclude that it's generally because there's no spirit. And I'll just say again, like I've said, I don't know, maybe a dozen times going through 1 John, this is another hard message. But it actually shouldn't be. This should be just like what you're used to hearing. American Christianity has so warped the definition of love and diminished what Jesus taught that we've come to expect that there can be a category of person called Christian that is fruitless in nature. But look at what Jesus taught in Matthew 7. He said, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down. It's thrown into the fire. And we're going to recognize people by their fruit. And we've deceptively told people that you can bear the name of Jesus Christ without actually showing the fruit of Jesus Christ. That you can like receive the love of God without his love changing you to be a totally different person. You can be a tree in the kingdom of God that bears rotten fruit, but that's categorically not possible. And it's actually a cruel and dishonest message. It's not what Jesus taught people. Jesus taught that if we go to him and we express our need for him, he'll accept us. And then because we need him, he's going to give us everything that we need to be like him. Streams of righteousness will flow from our life because of the spirit at work in us. Okay, so we know we abide in God because he's given us his spirit. Practically, what does that look like? Let me just touch on a couple of things. First, since the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, we're going to be sorrowful. We're going to be wounded. We're going to be broken and contrite over our sin. If our sin is exposed, it's going to, it's going to hurt us. The Holy Spirit's going to lead you to hate your sin. Hatred for sin is a fruit of the Spirit. And if someone were to confront you about your sin, which, like, do we even do that? Mostly we just shrug and we're like, yeah, yeah, that's so-and-so. That's just how they are. But if someone confronts you about your sin, you're, if the Holy Spirit is in you, you are not going to be defensive and you're not going to be angry. You might for, like, ten minutes. And then the Holy Spirit's just going to wreck you and make you sleepless until you're broken. Christians who shrug off their sin and no longer feel broken or disturbed or sorrowful about it, they are the tree that is very close to being chopped down and tossed into fire. Second, since the Holy Spirit gives us endurance to run the race, we can have confidence that God is going to complete the work that he began in us. You may be exhausted of pursuing righteousness, but the Holy Spirit is not going to let you lay down and give up and die. Christians are never going to quit their quest for holiness. 
we're never going to be satisfied. There's not going to be a day where we wake up and it's like, I think I've hit my fruit quota and I'm done. I have made it. We're never going to retire from our pursuit of godliness. We're always going to keep fighting to be more like Christ. It's going to be exhausting sometimes, but we're not going to give up. Third, we're actually going to make progress. In our own strength, in your own strength, you could never expect to be a better person than you are. But in the strength of the Spirit of Christ, a supernatural, super-powered change agent, God's going to transform you. He's going to make you different. The Holy Spirit is not only a very capable bull rider, but the Holy Spirit is like the bull whisperer. He takes the wild human heart and makes it docile, docile, chill, tame, calm, peaceful, restful. Our progress towards holiness, it doesn't look like perfection, but it does look like progress. And again, not because we're awesome, but because that's what the Spirit of God does. When God's Spirit takes up residence in the human heart, then the chains of sin are undone. And the works of the devil are, are wrecked. And we become a new creation. The light of God shines forth from our hearts. Darkness is purged and we are changed. And our part is actually very simple. Look at verse 13. We abide in him. We just abide in him. That means we know his commands and we seek to do them. We rejoice in his grace and we rest in the finished work of Jesus. You know, a couple examples. I mean, we choose purity instead of immorality and God bears us up against temptation. We choose to be humble instead of proud and God gifts us the humility of Christ. We choose to rejoice instead of complain and God changes our attitude. We choose to speak the truth and not deceptive words and God fills us with confidence that he'll take care of the details. We abide in his commands and then the Spirit bears fruit. Now look at verse 14. I won't be as long on verse 14 as I was on 13. It says, And we've seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. John drives all of this home in these two verses by telling us that he has seen the work of God. He testifies to it. In other words, John's not making this up. It's not wishful thinking. He was a witness to something incredible. And that incredible thing that he saw was the supernatural work of Jesus to save the world. And whatever God sets his mind to, he always accomplishes it. He never fails. And if we claim that we are a born-again Christian, a spirit-filled Christian, but we fail to bear fruit in that over time, then again, we, we actually insult God. Because God sent his, save, or his son into the world to be the savior of the world. Now typically we think savior means that Jesus is the sin forgiver. And that is true. We tend to equate savior with forgiver. But if Jesus is merely the forgiver of your sins, then you have failed to comprehend the Christian message. Yes, Jesus did come to forgive us of our sins, 
But once we're forgiven, Christ calls us into a new life. His life. He came not only for the forgiveness of sins, but also to undo the works of the devil, to break the chains of slavery to sin, to regenerate the human heart, to treasure God's righteousness, to desire it, to restore the relationship between God and man. And this is what John is testifying to, to what he's seen and what he experienced, not just in the death of Jesus, but in the life of Jesus, in his sacrificial death and in his resurrection and gift of the Spirit. The power of God to bear the fruit of righteousness in the life of those who are his children. And friends, one of my deepest desires, and if you've been around, you've heard me say this, but one of my deepest desires as a pastor is that nobody who belongs to my church would be surprised on the day of judgment. That nobody who's part of my church would be among those people who say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name only to hear him say, depart from me. I never knew you. Like those poor fools in Matthew 7, 23 who are turned away by Jesus even though they bore the name of Christ. That nobody in my church would think that salvation is merely the forgiveness of sins when so much more is being offered to us in Christ. The way in which Jesus is the Savior of the world is first the forgiveness of sins and then it is a life of abiding in the Spirit and bearing more and more good fruit for the glory of God. John says, by this, by his Spirit, we know he abides in us and we abide in him.